Enrollment is open for Thomas's upcoming six-session live online course, Navigating the Levels of Trauma Healing. Explore how to work with the impacts of collective crises and challenges and learn tools to manage anxiety, overwhelm, and nervous system dysregulation during times of accelerated change and disruption. In this all-new curriculum, Thomas and expert guest speakers will engage in ecosystemic practices to collectively explore our resilience, agency, and capacity to stay present and find deeper meaning. Click the link in our show notes to learn more and enroll. Or go to www.navigatingthelevelsoftrauma.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is The Point of Relation. The following interview was recorded during a previous Collective Trauma Summit, an online gathering convened annually by Thomas Hubel to share ideas and inspire action for healing, individual, ancestral, and collective trauma. Visit CollectiveTraumaSummit.com to listen to featured talks from our most recent summit and sign up to be the first to know when the next summit is announced. Our guests for today's episode are Deb Dana and Stephen Porges. Deb Dana is a clinician, consultant, author, and speaker specializing in complex trauma. Her work is focused on using the lens of polyvagal theory to understand and resolve the impact of trauma on our lives. Dr. Stephen Porges is a professor of psychiatry, the founding director of the Traumatic Stress Research Consortium and originator of polyvagal theory, a theory that stresses the nervous system's role in behavior stemming from trauma. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome back to the Collective Trauma Summit. My name is Thomas Hübel, and I'm the organizer and convener of the summit. And I have the great pleasure to be here today with uh, Deb Dana and uh, Stephen Porges, who joined us also last year. So first of all, a very warm welcome to both of you. I'm happy you joined us, and I'm curious and want to learn a lot through our conversation. So a warm welcome. Well, thank you for having us. It's a pleasure mm -hmm. to be here. Lovely to be here with you. So many years ago, when I read the first time about the polyvagal theory, it um, made so much sense. And uh, it's, it's a visceral experience. And uh, I think sense-making and sensing and sensing each other is deeply connected. So I'm a deep fan of uh, the polyvagal theory and its applications. And I know you both uh, work a lot on, on refining um, and, and creating more and more applications. So I would love to first understand how any one of us that uh, works professionally in the in 
through process facilitation, therapy, any kind of mediation, I think, or even teachers in schools or, or couples or parents or like the, the, the fields are like thousands uh, where we find an application for the kind of knowledge, but also the practice of what the polyvagal theory offers. And maybe you can just share with us a little bit uh, about applications that are helpful for everybody and then more in specific for therapists, um, how we can use the understandings of the polyvagal theory in, in our lives and professional lives. So maybe we start, maybe, Deb, do you want to start today? Um, I can. I'm, I'm happy to. When you were talking about um, all of the, the different professions or people, you know, I thought, well, we can just keep going because polyvagal theory is really about um, human to human contact, right? It, it's, you know, the, the nervous system is the common denominator in our human experience. And it's where all of our um, daily experiences emerge from, from this wonderful nervous system. And, and Steve's work with polyvagal theory has given us a roadmap to begin to under, understand that. So, you know, um, it, and it's my particular work is mostly with, with clinicians or people in the helping profession because I get clinicians and coaches and, you know, speech therapists, occupational therapists, people who are working with people. But but, um, you know, through Polyvagal Institute, you know, Steve's work is now getting out to schools and medical settings and business people. And it's just really exciting to see how that's beginning to unfold. Well, let, let me uh, add a little bit to it. Not much, but a little. Um, if we think about what the theory brings to us, in a sense, it teaches us about what it is to be a human, and that is this necessity to connect with another. And this is uh, functionally the biological imperative of a social mammal. And we have some similarities with other social mammals. And the part that I'd like to emphasize is that sociality, this notion of connecting and interacting, is just not merely a psychological or social behavior. It's a neurophysiological one. It's part of our health process. We interact with others to become healthy. And we have to remember that part of the problem with the history of, let's say, Western society is the peeling off of an understanding of our biological substrate from our cognitive or intentional behaviors. And we were suffering. We pay a big price for that. And we call those stress-related disorders. And in doing that, we also are dishonoring what's really happening. Stress-related disorders or psychiatric disorders like anxiety miss, are mislabels or misdirections. It's really that our bodies are now in states of threat because we haven't developed the skill set of co-regulating with each other. And it's not even that we develop a skill set. We functionally develop skill sets not to co-regulate. That's our normal mode is to connect. And yet societal demands uh, basically force us into feeling threatened or states of threat that interfere with this ability to co-regulate with one another. Hmm. So let's let's talk a little bit about like when there like one state in society is anxiety and fear and what's what's our remedy because it seems the remedy is built into our bodies 
and we need to read the manual which <laughs> you yeah. gave us and 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 apply it so uh how do we create safe spaces because everybody who facilitates processes knows that creating yeah. a safe space is is the foundation of any kind of healing work so how do we do that let me start with this and then hand it off to deb because deb is our therapist she's our clinician and i want to make sure that people don't think that i I do clinical work, you know, I come up with ideas and other people like Deb actually put it into practice. But let's kind of even reframe your question. And that is, you're already saying that we need help to, in a sense, reach our core, who we are. We have to, in a sense, honor what our body evolved to do. And it evolved to regulate itself in the presence of others. So it meant that it was co-regulating with others. And this concept of mind versus body was another form of internal co-regulation, where bottom-up and top-down kind of meet together in the brainstem, and they share a vision of what it is to be a healthy organism. It's in us. It's our part of our plan of health. And what we have done is we literally have not honored what the body is always trying to teach us. So people who suffer from what we used to term earlier, anxiety or chronic stress, they will tell you that they know they're doing something wrong, that it's not what they want to do. They can't tell you what they want to do. Uh, but the body has its, has its program. And it doesn't mean that we can't inhibit that program for periods of time to do our cognitive learning, to do our work, to create the resources. But we have to still literally uh, understand that our system needs time on which it's not under those types of demands. And Deb, you know, in the world of therapy, has learned, not learned, it's again her intuitive, instinctual uh, un unfolding of these intuitive ideas, she's able to translate them into actually direct practices. And it's really been quite impressive to see the effectiveness when you can move it into a language that both therapists and clients can understand. Yeah, so, so when I think about um, our clients and sitting with clients and coming into connection, um, I, I like to talk about the fact that our nervous systems are having a conversation. And it's our job to tune into that conversation. And then I think it's our, you know, part of our work is to help our clients speak that language as well. And so we, we keep following this, this back and forth conversation that's happening below the level of awareness. We bring it into explicit awareness so that we can actually have that. And, you know, I, I like to say, you know, I'm helping my client become a more active operator of their nervous system, right? They understand it, they befriend it, and then they be can begin to to shape it, you know, to to um, have more of what we call ventral on board, right? And and you know, I, I I say that that I truly do believe that we all have a home in ventral, that our nervous system knows how to get there, that the pathways have often been covered up because of our experience. 
but my work as a therapist is to help uncover those pathways and and walk those pathways with my client so that they become more used to being on that path and so that's our home we have a home in ventral that that we long to be in and our nervous system knows how to get to and so let's let's help uncover those pathways and in order to do that we have to um, reduce the, the the warnings that our nervous system is getting, you know, from, you know, inside our bodies, we get warnings or welcome, right? And then from the environment, we get warnings and welcomes. And then as Steve was talking about this beautiful connection between nervous systems, we get a warning or a welcome, right? And, and that's that, that co-regulation piece, which, you know, as a, as a, clinician it's our responsibility to be regulated so that we can offer that regulating experience and energy to our clients and that i think is is one of the real gifts of of steve's work is understanding that this is not something um, for clients right this is something clinicians need to understand and embody and then we bring to our clients and we travel with our clients, but it's first what we have to understand about our own nervous systems. And I, I think there's there's such a, a, a power in that, right, in, in understanding and, and, and knowing how to get to my own regulated place and then um, understanding when I've left regulation. And how to get back there because that's that's what happens to us all you know you think about think about the clients you've seen you know over the past week and think about the moments when oh that was a bit messy right you know because i sort of lost my um anchor in ventral i had a moment when i felt a little bit of that overwhelming sympathetic what do i do or that dorsal um um oh i, I give up nothing's ever going to change right and then we come back to ventral and go oh wait a minute you know, I can notice the small things that are changing and I can hold the hope with my client. You know, this happens all the time. And so understanding that helps me, you know, do what Steve said to, to not create a story of blame and shame and judging, but create a understand the story of my biology. Right. And then I can do something with that understanding so that I'm more able with that particular client to stay anchored and offer them that missing experience that is often the missing experience with trauma survivors of safe co regulation. Right. Yeah. Let's add a little bit onto mm -hmm. that. And Deb's saying something else in addition to what she said. So there's a backstory here. She's saying that the state that the therapist is in affects the client. And we live in a world where people have learned to deliver therapy as if it were a pill. So it became manualized. And what uh, Deb is saying, our bodies are so clever, we react to other people's presence. And if they're not authentic, if they're not truly supportive, they won't be good clinicians. So I have this kind of like a code word I use. I say there are in this world, there are some super co-regulators. Mm -hmm. And when we meet them, we know it. And there are others, and I put myself in that other category, that are, quote, good enough. And that is that, you know, we can interact with the other people. They feel good with us. Mm -hmm. But a super co-regulator can walk into the presence, the space of someone who's dysregulated, and suddenly the, the portal opens and the co-regulation can begin. 
Yeah, and, and that, that comes through that beautiful um, neuroceptive pathway, right, that below the level of awareness, you, you just, you feel held in yeah. um, an energy, an environment, an experience, and your nervous system knows it. So your brain may, may, may say, oh, I don't know, or not sure, or a different story, but your nervous system knows it and, and, and begins to come into that, um, that space and begins to allow, oh, maybe, right? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. And maybe circling back to one thing that you said that maybe completes that also is when you said before, maybe for our listeners to, to define a bit more, what's a warning from inside my body and what's a warning from my environment? Maybe we can make this more explicit. I think it's it's uh, sure. yeah. yeah, yeah. So so if you you know if if you if you listen inside your body in this moment, and you know if everybody listens listens inside their body, you know they they, they may find a place. We we'll look for a warning and a welcome. We'll look for a warning. You may find a place that feels a bit um, numb or a bit too excited you know i've got sort of a a, a a throat that keeps going and coming so that's a warning to me it's like oh this is you know so i can feel that and then so you know what do you find do you find a, a warning inside when you when you check inside what do you notice wow basically what i notice is that i'm inherently relatively calm it doesn't uh -huh. mean that i live to calm life but mm -hmm. I start realizing it much more in others where they yeah. can't sit still. They walk around, they right. create a narrative, they create right. a action which they have to fulfill. So they yeah. get mobilized and now they have to complete something. Right. Uh, so, but what I kind of like to talk about in terms of what you're saying is that we live in a world that really has treated us as from the, from young age to tell us not to listen to those cues coming from our body. So mm -hmm. it says, turn off the feedback, sit still, uh, do more of this. You know, you only have another hour of this work to do. Uh, basically teaching us at an early age to develop a skill set of dissociation. And yep. what are we dissociating from? What our body has been telling us. Now you can develop a, I would use the term, a happy harmony, where you mm. are aware of what your body is telling you, but you just basically shift priority. You say, I have to get this done. So mm. you acknowledge what you need to do. I can't eat right now. I, you know, I have to do this. Or for younger children, it's like, can't go to the bathroom at this moment. You start developing a certain understanding of your biological processes and you kind of uh, become the master of, you control it, but you listen to it. And what I'm really saying is the world that we have, all of us, whether we're, we're in Europe or Israel or the US, our reaction was sit on it, inhibit those feelings. Um, they're just going to get in the way of what you need to do. Now, that's a very interesting set of priorities, but what it does is creates uh, the collective diseases or stress, really, whatever we want to call them. They get lists of where our body is now, uh, in a sense, uh, refusing to be compliant. But the whole issue is not being aware of our body. And if we go through this uh, reframing in terms of tells that are or telltales within our body, we react to cues in the body and outside the body through uh, 
basically this process that I labeled as neuroception. The, the interesting part about neuroception, it, we lack the awareness of the source of the cues, but we are aware of the bodily reactions. And that's how, in a sense, step, that's how your therapy works. You work from there and you get people to sit still for a moment and not create a story of why their body feels that way, but to feel that body. So they mm-hmm. understand that the body is now in a state that has great accessibility or vulnerability, can all be the same. And then the narrative falls in. And this becomes, again, the uh, one of the important points, why there's so much anxiety or mobilization or stress-related disorders, or why people are in therapy. And that is sitting still or being accessible is vulnerability to them. And a healthy person says, stillness, sitting still is really where I want to be. But the person who has that complex trauma history, when they experience that same uh, sense, their body is now no longer mobilized, they're really experiencing great threat. Mm -hmm. So accessibility means something different based upon your own personal clinical history. Yeah. And, you know, trauma survivors are are taught um, fairly explicitly to not um, see what is happening, to not feel what is happening and what they're feeling is not correct. So there's a, you know, there's an explicit teaching of that to trauma survivors when you grow up in a dangerous world and in a um, dangerous family. And so to come back into connection with that is a slow and patient process, you know, to, to say, you know, your body is sending you a warning, you know, and usually it's, it's the big warning we can feel first, we don't feel the subtle ones. And then is there a welcome in there? And often in the beginning, it's a place where, you know, perhaps, of no feeling or a place that doesn't have that intense pain on the inside because you know we leave our bodies for good reason right and so learning how to safely come back in is a is a is a very slow slow process and sometimes the body feelings that we start with are the ones here because that's where we live right so i have a headache you know, okay, people can can feel headaches because it's here, or I can feel oh, there's a bit of there's a bit of warmth. You know, so it, it's interesting to explore um, coming back into connection with with the body. So you know, that's the internal. And then Thomas, you asked about the environmental, right? You know, as we we started today, I, I had this lovely sense of being welcomed into your space because it's a beauty for my nervous system. Your space is is very lovely and welcoming. That environment was like, oh, I could feel myself there in it, right? So so for me, it wasn't even my environment, which I do love. It was your environment that was sending me me a welcome. And then my my warning in my environment, I had to close my window because they're they're doing some roofing project. And so it was this hammering out there. It was like, oh no, that's that, that no, right? And then if we go to the between. You know, which is where, you know, we started with co-regulation, that sense of of a, a welcome or a warning between, right? You know, um, I, I actually am I'm trying to find a warning right now because, um, you know, it's, it's I, I just feel very connected to the two of you and my nervous system feels very welcomed, mm-hmm. right? There's a sense of, um, you know, the, the smile on Steve's face, you know, your beautiful welcome face that I hadn't seen until a little while ago mm-hmm. but there's there's this welcome that comes the warnings we often feel with you know in the between space is somebody may um you know look away 
when we're talking or look down and be be focused on something else and that's an autonomic automatic warning to, that comes in it's like oh what just happened there's a disconnect that happens so you know for people listening they can begin to you know maybe they'll they'll look at our faces and say is there is there a welcome right? Is there a welcome that they feel here? And then think of people who they are in relationship with and think of what's the warning? You know, not the, not what they say, not the words, but but what's the autonomic warning? It may be the tone of voice. It may be um, the way they come too close or, or distance. Those are the sorts of welcomes and warnings that we're always looking for. And what I've come to recognize is that they're always both present and so it's not that I don't ever have warnings. It's that my cues of safety is what I call them, but my welcomes outweigh the cues of danger. And when that happens, when that equation is in that direction, then I can feel regulated safe enough to come into connection. Right. So, so that's really what I'm working with. Mm -hmm. And that's beautiful. It was a lovely description. I think many people can find themselves in, in what you both shared now. And um, so circling back for a moment, and then I want to deepen a bit the conversation around trauma. Um, circling back to regulation. Deb, you said before, I think you both mentioned it before, like when I feel that I'm stepping out or I'm, I'm getting out of my regulated state, first of all, how does one notice that? Maybe that's not fully clear to many people that that's happening. And the second thing is, what are actually practices how to return to that uh, regulated state? I think that's um, a, a very important question, I think, to many people listening to us here. Yeah. Steve, do you want to talk about the science of how you know you're dysregulating? I, I will uh, venture into that space. Uh, what I've noticed, and I'm not going to really talk too much about the science more than observations. Um, I, my comments are going to be more based on observations. That if you look at people's muscle tone to their arms and legs, because you'll see people when they're talking, they'll clench their fist. If you listen to their voice, if their voices lose the melodic, prosodic features, uh, since the larynx and pharynx are regulated by vagal pathways, they're basically telling you whether or not they're in a ventral vagal state or not. And so you're hearing in their voice, their physiology. You're seeing in their body, if the muscle tone is tight, it's a high sympathetic excitation. The voices are high pitched and squeaky or lack uh, melody. They're in a sympathetic state. If it's a male voice that goes to a low, booming, yelling voice, so there's no frequency modulation, but volume modulation, it's a sympathetic, aggressive state. Our bodies know this. I mean, this is not a, a new knowledge to our body. The issue is we've been taught to neglect it. We've been taught to say, when I experience that, I should neglect that, and I should focus on what the person is saying. And that's where you get this uh, violation of authenticity. And that's the gut feeling that you've been violated and you should have known because your body is saying this is a risky interaction. And then when you get injured, you say, ah, crap, I should have picked this up. Um, and it happens for many people frequently because they go into the situation with a degree of benevolence and positive expectation. And they also go into it without an honor of their own uh, a detective system, their own neuroception. 
they're not respecting themselves, they're deferring to the other. They make statements like, if the person holds this position, the person must be smart. If the person is a therapist, they must be a good therapist. They start, in a sense, creating, or the person is an expert. I'm not an expert, so I need to listen to what they are saying. But their body's telling you that what they're saying doesn't carry any uh, truthfulness to, to them. Yeah, and, and and what I you know like to to help clients do is is have a moment of feeling regulated mm-hmm. even if it's a micro moment of of what is that experience because then we can contrast it with how do you know you're dysregulating because you can't know that until you know both right, right. so we have a micro moment of regulation which often is um between me and my client right that that's this moment that we come into connection together and i can i can feel oh so we're both feeling safe and okay right now let's let's really describe that how you know what's happening in your body what what are you thinking what are you feeling what are some of the things you want to do in this place right and then we can begin to contrast that to okay so when you begin to go to that place that steve just described so beautifully that that sympathetic overwhelming chaotic disorganized energy of fight and flight how do we know that how how do you feel that in your body what do you think what do you feel what do you do here and then the other one where so many of us trauma um, trauma um, therapists understand because our trauma survivors go to that place of disconnect that's the place we want to also map like so okay so so when you go to that place where you've you've lost fight and flight you know, all of the energy is 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 gone for you. You're in that hopeless despair, um, going through the motions, but not really here place. How do you feel that? How does your body tell you that? What do you think? What do you feel? What do you do? And so those are the basic landmarks that we're always, you know, mapping in the beginning and actually creating a map, right? Because well, we have to have that map of our system in order to know you know, the question is, well, where am I? I have a map now. Yes, Steve. Oh, well, I was going, sorry about jumping in, but you're also asking that when you move into those states, or you're suggesting the concept of optimism and purpose in life goes right with it. So when the person is in a sense that state of despair, purpose in life is gone, ability yep. to be supportive of other or co-regulatory is gone. So you start seeing uh, what gets pulled away from the beauty of what it is to be a human being. And what I have come up with in the sense of my, what I've learned from the trauma community is I've learned what it is to be a human being. What what are the gifts? It's a, a paradoxical thing to say that you learn more about the benevolence of being a human being from those who have been so hurt by society and others that you see what has been pulled away, but you also see within them is a vision of being able to be co-regulated with someone, even though their bodies will not allow anyone to come close to them. So you start seeing what's built into the nervous system, this positive, optimistic narrative, and then you see what the body is doing with that information. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, I like to invite my clients to really, you know, bring that that curiosity 
to this exploration and sort of the recognition that, you know, in the moment when your nervous system takes you to sympathetic survival energy or dorsal disconnecting energy, it's doing that because your neuroception is sending a message that, that the world is dangerous right now. You're in danger and your nervous system is simply going to take you to one of those places um, without, without, you know, without thought, it's just going to do it. And can we, um, you know, first just bring curiosity to it. And then later on, you know, can we even, you know, bring some um, great gratitude for the way the nervous system has creatively um, rescued us in the beginning? That's a stretch. In the beginning, we simply want to be a bit um, curious and, and understand that that your biology, you know, is 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 working in service of your survival always. And that I do put in in the beginning in service of survival, you know. And then we begin to appreciate that service of survival when we've you know moved a, a little further along in our in our work. Yeah. Mm. And do you both? Like there's one question that comes up uh, listening to you. Um, so going through such therapy, um, is there a, is a regulation a muscle we train and we are getting better at it? Or meaning the other way around is is safety something is something we grow? Or is safety something we rediscover moment to moment or end? So let's speak a little bit to where we start and what's actually an internalized safety, if there is something like well, that, and how do we develop that? So maybe let me we kind can... of start with this. And, and it's, again, how do we conceptualize our presence on the planet? Do we see ourselves as machines that learn and have to be trained to do everything? Or do we see ourselves as a system, an organism that has a lot of what would be called emergent properties if we are allowed to nurture that organism? So it's like a flower blooming. Um, it needs light. It needs nourishment. I, you know, and what do we need to be who we really are? And that becomes an extremely important dialogue. We have to, so you start off with the notion, is it a muscle? You know, it's kind of like toning and exercise. And I'd like to talk about neural exercises because that's all we're really doing. And social behavior, social interactive play, those are neural exercises that help us regulate our state. But remember, if we use the word play, it's subjugated to a low priority in our society. It's something that is not necessary. Uh, but play is critical because it creates this neural organization, this neural exercise of reciprocal interactions, calming and movement, which is what our nervous system needs to be exploratory on the planet and to be calm by itself when it's exploring in its mental space or spiritual space. So without this capacity to regulate our physiological state, we're not a very complex organism. We just don't do what we could do. And I guess I talk about, I do talk about shaping our system, that we have patterns of protection and patterns of connection that, that, are, that um, are shaped throughout our life. And most of our clients come to us um, really 
in those patterns of protection um, more often than than ability to come into patterns of connection. And so that's what therapy and in you know when I working with clients that's what i say we're doing we're we're helping you you know walk those patterns of connection more often right and and the more often we do that then they become easier to walk and we don't fall as much into the patterns of protection but they're always going to be there ready to rescue when needed so you know i i think what i like to see and i like to track with my clients is the ways the subtle ways their responses are changing Mm-hmm. Right. And and as we, we notice those those nuances of change, you know, and I often ask clients, you know, when they come back, so tell me something that happened differently this week. Right. Not something that was better, but something different. Right. Because that's what we're looking for. What happened differently in your nervous system? How did your nervous system respond in a different way? Because if I'm habitually stuck in that state of collapse, the different might be that wow, I had a sympathetic moment of mm-hmm. fight. Right. And we go, that's right. Right. Isn't that wonderful? Your system started to come back to life in that way. So, you know, tracking those ways. And then, you know, the story changes with clients because they begin to see that that their system is changing and they feel the outcome of those little changes that then are going to add up to something larger so you know i do talk about shaping and i think i think it's a very hopeful thing for clients to to notice these small ways that that something new happened right so so deb i would just reframe it in a, a different way but it's exactly what you're saying and that is inviting the client on a shared journey of exploration and i think this is missing in education and in medicine where everything is evaluation oriented Mm -hmm. when it could be a shared journey to learn about your body or learn about your your intellectual competence in education a journey and we go to physicians what do we do we get tests when we get those tests are we anxious or fearful that the test will show something so we create that same uh window of basically threat in all these institutions when medicine could be framed we're doing these tests and when we get them you know we're going to sit down talk to you about what these things really mean and we're going to learn about the wonder of your body and how it's trying to in a sense create these homeostatic systems these regulatory systems and sometimes they get out of whack and we need to develop joint strategies of helping them work we don't frighten people and say that if they're not scared they won't be compliant and this has fallen into both physical health treatment in medicine and also in psychiatric world you have to scare the client sufficiently that they'll be compliant what does that mean take their drugs do their homework and you know you're talking about medicine and, and psychiatry, but we we want to bring that into the the clinical psychotherapy world too, because even the 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 first meeting with a client can often um, feel very dangerous to a client, and the fact that they have you know we're doing this initial assessment it's called an assessment, right? Yeah. You know, rather than a let's get to know. You know, what has brought you here? Let's get to know that. And, and you know, people have to tell you about their childhood history. It's like, no, no, we, let's not do that now. Let's get to know. Let's spend time connecting. And, and it, it's important to recognize that with, you know, even in the world of therapy, we, we have not been trained to take the time to do that. 
to really establish the safety of this relationship. And for many clients, um, you know, coming into connection with a therapist and really feeling safe enough to um, share, to talk, to go on a shared journey, right? Which is, I, I tell my clients, we're going on an autonomic adventure, right? And for clients to actually be willing to do that, their nervous system has to trust my nervous system, right? They have to, I have to be dependable. I have to be trustworthy. And in order to do that, I have to be regulated and I have to be transparent about the moments when I dysregulate. And that I think is one of the beauties of working in this polyvagal guided way is that when I have a moment when I get pulled out, you know, because, because all of a sudden I, I remember, oh, I gotta, I've got four things I have to do after I finish with this client, right? And then I come right back and I think, oh, they're not going to notice. Well, their nervous system noticed. You can't get away with it. And so what I've discovered is it's so much better to say, you know, did you notice? I just got pulled away for a moment. My sympathetic system just dragged me away and now I'm back right? Because that's what happened. And, and I've had so many clients tell me, thank you for saying that because I felt something, but I didn't know what it was. So we're giving them the context so that they can create the story that makes sense instead of the renewing the trauma story that, oh, Deb, you know, is bored with me or she doesn't want to work with me or I'm too broken or any of those, those things. So again, I think, I think it's a, it's just a lovely way to work and to really attend to the relationship in that way. Yeah, that sounds very beautiful and profound. Also, the authenticity of, of being congruent with the process. It's beautiful what you said now. Yeah. And um, so, given like what, everything we said right now, if we applied it, I have one, one question I have for both of you and also for Steve, for you as a, as a researcher. Like when we say intergenerational, because our summit's about collective trauma, like massive wounds that we share culturally and over generations and the transgenerational transmission of trauma. So if if somebody has a strong transgenerational transmission of trauma, and so we come into life with higher stress and fear receptors or with some epigenetic changes. So how how would we see this in, in, in a bigger context? So would that apply similarly? Is there anything that, for example, co-regulation would help us to maybe affect that kind of condition we came into life? So how does, how, what was your finding as a, as a researcher on the nervous system? Is there any, are there any signs well, of transgenerational trauma? Well, I, I haven't done uh, transgenerational or intergenerational uh, research, but I look at trauma history and how it relates to autonomic reactivity and other clinical symptomatology. And the interesting part of that story is that um, the variance of trauma history in terms of outcome is virtually 100% accounted for by autonomic retuning. It's not 100%, but it's extraordinarily high. And we did a study uh, during the pandemic, and this is of people who were not infected, but we measured anxiety and depression and worry, different features of worry. And we looked at the child, uh, basically we create our own adversity history scale. And we measured uh, a subjective tool that I developed called the body perception questionnaire that really gives you an index of autonomic reactivity. 
And interestingly, or would be obvious that the greater your trauma history, the more adverse events you you have experienced, the more um, uh, let's, the greater your the poorer your outcomes would be in terms of symptomatology, and also the more adverse history you had, the more autonomically reactive you are. But if you create a model and says, "I have trauma history here." And then I have whether or not my autonomic nervous system is retuned to be a threat system. Then the path from trauma history goes right through the autonomic state to the outcomes. And virtually nothing goes from trauma history to the outcomes by themselves without, without a retuned autonomic nervous system. But therapists see that. They see that the autonomic nervous system of Trauma survivors is different. They have a variety of comorbidities, but they don't conceptualize it as a retuned autonomic nervous system that is retuned to be in a state of chronic threat. Now, to circle back to your question, Thomas, the issue is if your autonomic nervous system is in a state of threat, how do you find the portal to normalize it, to shift it back. And this is where Deb's work and even the work with the safe and sound protocol is all about. It's giving cues of safety to the nervous system to allow it to be accessible for periods of time. And what Deb was talking about was during those periods of time where she is having moments of co-regulation with her client, those become a window that can start expanding because there's a learning, a shared journey of learning about one's own visceral state and the ability to tolerate those minor shifts in visceral state that we then would say you're a resilient person versus a person, oh, he lost it again. I mean, and we we know this in the world that we live in. Uh, and we all have, many of us, I used to say we all have, but I realized that especially the clinical world, very few clinicians work for other people. And then I say, oh, they're really smart people. Because when you work in another environment, you're dealing with people who are unpredictable in their ability to be co-regulatory. And they can often be uh, reactive to you, independent of what you do. And academics is just one of those places because people are under a, uh, let's say, internalized demands and everything becomes about uh, intellectual productivity and not about collegial mm. mutual support. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, I have two things. One, I wanted to just say something about that. I have so many colleagues um, here in the States who work for agencies and they have a lot of those same um, threat cues that come of productivity, you know, um, somebody else making your schedule, all of these things. And, and, and it truly is um, disruptive to the nervous system. It's very hard to, to have all of those unpredictable things and those overwhelming demands and then come and sit and be regulated and, and um, bring that to a client. So there is that. The, the, the intergenerational piece or the trans generational um, transmission of trauma, I kind of take it just very, very simply and with clients and, and ask about um, their their mom and dad and, and their mom and dad's families. Because for me, it's simple to say, okay, so tell me about your mom's family. You know, how did she grow up? You know, because that's where her nervous system was shaped in that 
environment and then your dad's and then you can go back and you can keep going back if you know if you have that information and say so those nervous systems all were you know held in dangerous dysregulated environments and learned how to survive in those and then it keeps getting passed down and so your mom and dad you know were the two nervous systems you know if, if it was a mom and dad or whoever was in the family those are the nervous systems that was the the inner that was the air you breathed that was the sea you swam in you know that's where your nervous system learned how to survive and so for me it, you know that way of thinking about how it's passed down makes it makes it easy for clients to 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 understand and also to look back and and see the biological dysregulation and sometimes have some compassion in a different way so Deb, let me add to that by saying that we are traumatized species and so it's not merely that our grandparents or you know uh you know immigrated under great duress or that they were holocaust survivors or other things if we go and look at like most of the population in the u.s it's an immigrant population and it, it's immigration not under the best of circumstances and the native population was not in a sense uh, the immigrants weren't welcoming to the native ones so you start seeing this is total trauma if you go to australia you see it actually almost well it's in our lifespan the the way that the uh uh, first peoples of, of uh, Australia were treated. And even though the intention may have been, in a sense, uh, from the perspective of the 1950s and 1960s, the perspective was we're doing the right thing to educate and take them out of this, this uh, uncultured environment. It just replicated the trauma history that was embedded within the UK to begin with. And then if we say, well, Europe, you know, not not the British Isles, but Europe, uh, they've always been at war. And you start seeing that there is not a place where uh, in modern times that we can think of that has had a long history of, in a sense, peaceful coexistence that was inviting to diversity and co-regulatory. So even though we can say, oh, the Holocaust was horrible, we have to look at that intergenerational or what's going on in Ireland, where we've had discussions with those people, uh, it's the same story. I was just talking to a person whose parents left Lebanon in the 50s, but the, uh, actually during one of the Lebanese civil wars. It's the same story. And, you know, they, they immigrate, their kids do well, but it's also the lack of sense of safety uh, within the family or within the community, meaning that you're living in the wrong areas, you're being beat up by people from other other ethnicities, you're excluded. You start seeing this whole scenario unfolding all over the place. And we have to, in a sense, sit back and say, the core of humanity is wonderful. And we have to allow it to express itself. That's that's part of our mission. Yeah, you know, when, when you're talking, I was thinking, I, I often clients come to us, trauma survivors come to us and they say, I, I, I want something different for my kids. Yeah. Right. And that is a, that's, that's the longing. And through, you know, a, an autonomic lens, 
you know, I can say we, we, we can do that, right? Because as you become regulated, you are then providing an environment where there is safety, autonomic safety, right? At least if, if nothing else, there's autonomic safety, there is safety and connection and your children's nervous system is going to be shaped in that way through that. And it will begin to change. And, you know, there, there's sometimes that, that in my, you know, thought about, you know, does time really only flow in one direction? I often will tell clients and as we do this this work we can also offer a, a, a gift backwards we, we can you know we can we can work backwards and, and offer that healing back to generations so uh, for me that feels that feels important the backwards healing i'm actually going to build on that because what it enables us to do is literally honor the traumas of our relatives and to see them in their heroic light as opposed to seeing them as challenged in raising us. And for me, that's been a sense transformative for me to, in a sense, reverse it and see my parents as children, seeing my parents as what they experienced and what my grandparents experienced. And so, you know, they, they really did well with what they had, which is a very different perspective that a teenager has. And, and I think this is very important in terms of developing our own personal narratives. It's a very different experience than an adult who is still feeling um, dysregulated and and living the story of survival that they had to live in their family. And so when, when I can come to a place of regulation and and then begin to look out into the world through the eyes of, of regulation, that allows me to be curious and compassionate. Yeah. You know, you're you're giving again. It's a shared journey, and you're in a sense the explorer leading the team and saying this is possible. You can in a sense regain your heritage. That's really what we're saying, and this ability to be co-regulatory, which we also say is merely the basis of of good sociality and good health, is our heritage, and you're in a sense leading people back to their heritage. Hmm. Right, and then from that place, they create a new, a new family story. That's right. That's right. It's so lovely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's so lovely to listen to both of you how you're riffing off each other and how you're in a dance together. It's very beautiful. Regulatory, co-regulatory. Right, right. It's very beautiful to watch, and uh, and I love what you're saying also about the two-way healing that's yeah. passing on and also going back into our own ancestors so that's that's very beautiful how generosity starts to flow in both directions mm -hmm. it's beautiful and the safe and sound protocol you mentioned this before steve or can you both share a little bit what what that yeah, is okay and, uh, if if we think back at a lot of things that we were saying and that is a prosodic voice a mother's voice, a lullaby, will calm a crying baby. And then if we think about if you have a dog or a kitten, how do you talk to that? Or a horse, you use a melodic voice and suddenly these uh, un uncomfortable animals start coming closer to you. And then finally the dog goes on its back and you rub its belly because you are sending with that prosodic vocalization. Ter the term I use is distilled essence of safety. You're sending a cue that our nervous system can't reject. And the composers, the great uh, classical composers of symphonies, you know, Mozart, Beethoven, Haydn, 
all of these people understood the principles. They used it in their opening movement with a melody, which was a mother's lullaby. And then you got familiar with that. You felt safe and you got open. And what do they do with the melody? They give it to a broader range of instruments with lower and lower frequencies. And suddenly your body is retuned to be accepting of this broad range. The safe and sound protocol works on the same principle. It says there are certain frequencies that disarm our nervous system enable us to be calm. They also, those same frequencies, end up functioning as if it were an acoustic vagal nerve stimulator. It basically increases ventral vagal tone. And with the safe and sound protocol, it's a five one-hour program uh, that initially was being delivered over five sequential days in which the frequency bands were being modulated. It was a true neural exercise. It was a treadmill, literally, of this neural circuit. But when this, this worked really, I would say, exceptionally well with kids and people who were functionally in safe environments or felt safe in their environment. And with uh, many autistic kids, they would become spontaneously uh, verbal and social engaging. But when the trauma therapist who had heard me speak said, oh, we got to try this, they ran out and they tried it. And they started seeing some interesting things that really, I would say, disturbed me because it started to be a trigger. And some of the trauma therapists were so insightful. They said, a trigger, this means this is very powerful. To me, This a trigger was, oh, this can is has make people feel uncomfortable and I don't really want to be the one that is harming anyone. But what they ended up understanding was that you could basically slow up the procedure and often really slow it up to only a, a few minutes a day. And what you're doing is re-educating that nervous system, just like the classical composers were. You're using a little bit of the frequencies and then over time, you're expanding the experience. And through neuroception, where the body is now reacting to the cues and their neuroception, they're becoming aware of their physiology, but they have no narrative to put on it. So now it becomes something they can control. I'm listening to music and suddenly my body has this feeling and this feeling is that of a violation of trust. Well, isn't that interesting? And so then the therapy works with the person's own uh, detection or perception of their bodily reaction. And they start realizing that, that their nervous system is retuning. So it's really quite a remarkable, uh, uh, let's say, it's an adjunctive therapy to other therapies. It's not a therapy unto itself. It makes many individuals who have complex trauma histories uh, more accessible to other therapies. And in a way, it jumpstarts therapy, makes them uh, more accessible. And one of the things I love about the safe and sound is that it, you know, when, when our clients first come to us, they, 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 they want, they want change. They want to be fixed, right? You know, help me do something. Safe and sound protocol is something that, that is an actual piece of technology. We can do something, even if it's five minutes a day, we can do something and it gives clients something that, that they feel successful with, right? So it's a, it's a way to, to dive in and say, yes, 
we're going to do this and, and this, you know, at the end of five hours, or now we have three tracks of five hours each. So at the end of all this, your nervous system is going to um, have been shaped in, in a new way. So yeah. I find for clients in the beginning as a way to say, Here, here's something we are going to do in the midst of all of this other stuff that feels very not sure. It's a, it's a lovely um, cue of safety. It's actually uh, really, see, I think there's a part of the safe and sound protocol that really hasn't been emphasized. And that is literally the, the debriefing, the interaction with the therapist to discuss those visceral feelings. And that, I think, becomes that pathway of reconnection of, let's say, two parts of our nervous system, the head and the body. We're now seeing or feeling and we're understanding that when I listen to things, my body is reacting to them. And I'm feeling things. And remember, with many people with complex trauma, feeling is a distal phenomenon. Except for pain. They'll feel pain. But right. now they're feeling something that is has a gradation to it. Right. Right. You know, and the, the question... You know, so so what happened, right? And if we if we've done the map and they have enough sense yeah. of something shifting, and say, where did that take you? Yeah. Where did those five minutes of music take? You? Right, and that's the exploration, and it's so lovely to you're right to to do that together, yeah. right? Because we're both learning. Well, let's also put into context that if you're giving distilled cues of safety, what's the history of someone with complex trauma? that their trust in, uh, in a, with a person or a violation of trust with a person is deep in their history. And now by presenting cues of safety, their body is going back initially to that physiological state. And then they read that within their body and say, been there before, woof, getting out of there. Right. And it, it's really a remarkable thing to actually observe a person moving so rapidly into that and showing the power. And that's a top-down interpretation of a bottom-up. And that's where an understanding in that dialogue was that people realize, and this is the optimistic part, that they can, in a sense, uh, become accustomed to that and start seeing, uh, enjoying it. I had a psychiatrist who tried this herself, wrote me a letter. It was this, this is a 21 or 27 page single space letter. And I will just read the bottom, uh, I'll not read, I'll tell you the end story. She used to take drugs before her first client in the morning. And now she doesn't have to do that. And she now saw that her seven-year-old was funny not annoying. And she then, then said to me in, the, in this letter, I now know why people like music. So you can just imagine what her world was like. But in her doing it, and she did the thing that you should never do, she self-administered, and she had, of course, a trauma history. She ended up going through it three times, and the first two times were like going through a tube. She basically forced herself through it and had, it, didn't, it didn't resolve. But she was persistent. And she went by the third time she was retuned and it became, quote, now a different person related mm. to her family, different related to her clients differently. Mm. Mm. A very like brave person in a sense to take that visceral feedback, but mm. also told me a lot about her. And that was she didn't go and get help. Right, right. There, there's that that independence, we call right. it. Right. Or, or know, shame. 
she was Which a professional person? psychiatrist, you know, it, it right. was type, she didn't go and get help or delivery with someone who was working with this and other clients. No, she just did it right. on her own. Right, because, you know, it comes out of a, a, a sympathetic um, place. So we don't even have to say that. We can say it comes out of a state of threat. Yep. Yeah, it's a survival energy that says, right. no, I'm going to do this on my own, right? Or do yeah. it on my own because it's going to be humiliating if I tell mm-hmm. people I have a vulnerability. Yeah, or I, I just, I don't know how to um, connect with someone and ask for help right. and be be under their care, under their, right. their guidance, but I have uh, no why? idea how to do that. Why? Right? Because I don't trust anyone. Right, right, yeah. No, nervous system has learned not to. That's right. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And also a, a, a lovely, you know, thing about SSP, just like polyvagal theory to to understand it and embody it, SSP is to understand how it works and go through it yourself before you um, try it with a client, right? Get to know your own nervous system and let's do it with somebody else, right? Well, Find a colleague to- and do it. Mm-hmm. To me, it's amazing at the range of reactions to it. So when I developed this, this is innocuous. It doesn't do very much, but it seemed to work with autistic kids. They they start to spontaneously engage and their their auditory processing became normal. So this is good. But you know, I didn't really have much of a response, except I decided I would overdose with it. So I listened for many hours and became hypersensitive to human voice. And I could, I should really say, I couldn't even sit at the computer monitor because the computer fan was too noisy. So I became so uh, attuned to certain frequencies, I could hear voices through the walls. It took about two weeks for it to dissipate. And I'm basically very careful with that. But the, the issue is, I'm shocked that certain people, like there's there's a pilot project, a feasibility study going on now with Parkinson's disease. And when the first hour of de- delivering the first hour of SSP took about, I think, a few weeks with his first client because he was so sensitive. Now, he's gone through at least four hours, and now he's out dating because his his face is working, his voice is working, he moves well, and he likes the women, and the women like him now. So it's really this wonderful bit about a nervous system that was in a state of threat. Now, Parkinson's is a real disease. The question is, are all the symptoms permanent that are locked with that disease, or are some of them the body's reaction to the disease? So when we get Parkinson's, does our body go into a state of threat? And then the threat reaction becomes embedded in what we think the disease is. Alternatively, maybe there's aspects that are rehabilitative and you know it the bottom line is it works uh, well I and mean, there's also convergent data on vagal nerve stimulation as reducing symptomatology in parkinson's so i think what we're learning is that if the reactions that that we're seeing in different disorders look like a threat reaction a defensive st- stress threat reaction they are probably retunable mm. Right, you know, which you know, when when clients come to us, they bring what what you know we usually call a presenting problem, right? And you know, my my work is to say, you know, tell me about that because it's it's your nervous system showing us some way it's dysregulated, right? And then okay, let's now put this over here, 
and work here to bring some regulation. And then we'll take this presenting problem back and put it here and look at it from this more regulated place and see what has changed because, yeah. because it, it will change. It's, it's fascinating what changes and the options that clients um, have all of a sudden to, oh, I could do this. Right, they come up with these amazing options I could never come up with because it's their nervous system that's saying, "Oh, this is something we can do." So, again, I think it's I think you're you're right that the, the dysregulation, you know, that that brings this symptom, is is where we want to be. We go underneath the symptom to to regulate, and then things begin to change. Yeah. And again, it's so lovely to to follow your dance. Well, we want to we want to bring you into it, Thomas. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm enjoying entirely. It's lovely to see your dance together. It's very beautiful. It's very attuned between the two of you. It's lovely. And um, so maybe since I see our time, um, I, I have one more question. And let's see, because like a little bit to summarize, because. Stephen, you said before that we are living in a in a traumatized or we are a traumatized species. Like it's a traumatized world for a long time. So if we if we see us as a collective healing movement and we apply now things that we heard here, mm-hmm. as what can we do in order to to do our contribution or what you know all all what we uh, what you mainly shared now with us. Yeah. What's the, the movement? What's the, the contribution? Okay. I think, uh, even though I said we're a traumatized species and there's a lot of this disruption going on worldwide, I'm extraordinarily optimistic. I'm actually, and I think that the fact that we can talk about trauma and trauma is being discussed everywhere and it's even getting a foothold into basic medical practice, uh, we are acknowledging what has happened to our species. We're not denying it. And so I think the dialogue is there. And we're learning that whether it's through, uh, uh, let's say, breathing practices or yoga or through uh, SSP or through spiritual practices, uh, we're learning that the body can find other states that are comfortable and nurturing. And above all, that our interactions with others are really the underlying core of what it is to be a human. Mm-hmm. And then for, for me, I, I, I can feel very overwhelmed with the world because um, we are living in, in um, really challenging times, right? And I love Steve's optimistic viewpoint. <laughs> I sometimes feel this, oh my goodness, where do I even begin? And then I come back really to, you know, Steve's beautiful theory and the fact that if I can come to my own um, place of regulation, then what I am putting out into the world through my nervous system is our cues of safety and a welcome to come Mm -hmm. into connection. And as I move through the world, my nervous system is then communicating with other nervous systems, right? My nervous system is communicating with yours today and is communicating with anybody who's listening. And if I am anchored in ventral and send that out into the world, then I think we're changing the world one nervous system at a time, which for me, you know, feels both doable and powerful, right? So, yeah. So, yeah. with that statement, let me share with you what someone said at one of my workshops. There were there were two women in the front row of one of my workshops. It was a five day workshop at Cape Cod, and their husbands were engineers, 
And they said to me, we are changing the world one engineer at a time. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. You know, Steve, you, you said you once told me this, this definition of benevolence, and then I think you forgot where you ever told it to me. So I just say, Steve told me, Steve said this, but I truly love this. And I, I end all my workshops with this invitation that Ventral is not only a place that we, we can get to. And that changes our own experience of physical and psychological well-being. But it's a, it's something we can actively use in the world. And so what Steve said was benevolence is the active, ongoing, intentional use of ventral vagal energy in service of healing. And yeah. that, I think, takes it to another whole level, not only to be in ventral, but I can actively use that energy in service of healing. Thank you, Deb. <laughs> that's so beautiful this was a lovely beautiful ending and if there's anything you want to share with us to complete if you feel that we left anything out that uh, is important to you there is a space for it of course now And um, well, the only comment I, I'm going to make is that what we're doing or what you're doing Thomas in creating a, this collective trauma summit is extraordinarily important and I appreciate, I'm sure Deb does too, I don't like to speak for others, but we appreciate being part of it in a sense to enable our message to move out there and to be incorporated, not to displace, but to be incorporated in other messages. And this has been what I would say the beautiful journey of polyvagal theory is that it was not a theory uh, that was a therapy. It was a theory that informed people who were doing therapy. And so it, in a sense, we create this term that we call polyvagal informed. So whatever you do can be polyvagal informed. It doesn't mean that you can't do what you're doing. It just means that you have a greater respect for the state of the nervous system of your client and your state while you are delivering therapy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that thought about polyvagal informed because it really means that um, as I, as I move through daily life, I am looking through the eyes of my nervous system and I'm, and I'm looking at other people's biology and, and, and being curious about how, how that's happening and staying tuned into that autonomic communication that's always happening. And I, and I do think that is a, 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 it's a different way of moving through the world and a, and a really um, healing way of moving through the world. Mm. Very beautiful. And as I said, I want to highlight your dance together. I really enjoy this time and I, and I enjoy you being part of the Collective Trauma Summit. I think your message is very important. I highly appreciate it. And I think it enriches our world a lot. So... I think it's a very powerful contribution. So, and I would love to have you back again next year or whenever we continue. So it's it's very deep uh, to see also your attunement with each other uh, uh, speaks uh, the unspoken words. <laughs> thank you very much, Thomas. Yeah, thank you. Thank Deb. you. Thank thank you. Been lovely. Mm. Mm. Visit CollectorTraumaSummit.com to listen to more talks like this one and to sign up and be the first to know when the next Collective Trauma Summit is announced. Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hoover. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com, and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.
If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.